0: to pick on big tech in these days, I come at it at a little bit of a different lens. I mean, I think companies make major mistakes and I think they should be held accountable. And I think one of the great things, particularly about companies in America, is that you have an opportunity to self-correct or you'll pay a price in the market for not doing it. I think at the same time, we shouldn't underestimate the power of what big tech has unleashed around the world.
1: Despite pandemic headwinds, these are the headlines. Startups are thriving, venture capitalists are booming, with global venture funding exceeding the dot-com era at $300 billion last year. That growth came as industries disrupted by the pandemic, from work, healthcare, education, finance, shopping and entertainment, shifted dramatically to online services, which further created a boom for a strong IPO and M&A market. The bottom line, the global entrepreneurial revolution is here. And who better to unpack this than my next guest, renowned American investor, advisor, and author Christopher Schroeder, who has seen this firsthand in some of the most unexpected places. Chris is the co-founder of Next Billion Ventures, focused on the next billion digital consumers across global emerging markets, and is also a network partner for Village Global, an early VC fund backed by, among others, Bill Gates, Sarah Blakely, and Jeff Bezos. He sits on the investment committees of WAMDA Capital and Saudi Telecom Ventures. And that, my friends, is just the tip of the iceberg. Chris started out in politics with the George W. Bush presidential campaign before becoming the CEO of the Washington Post Newsweek Interactive. He then co-founded Health Central, backed by the likes of Sequoia and Carlyle before it was acquired in 2012. In 2013, Chris published Startup Rising, the entrepreneurial revolution remaking the Middle East, with a forward by Mark Andreessen. Today, we unpack the rise of startups through this crisis, solving for some of the toughest problems. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Bill and Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion-dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns to scaling a venture capital firm—we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen. Now let's get started. It's been a minute since we hung out, but um, as I was saying earlier, you know, behind stage, it's—it's going to be a challenge, I think, today for us with 30 minutes because there's just so much depth that I think uh, we've always covered in our conversations. And, you know, today we want to talk about a topic that you love uh, and you're so passionate about and I think has truly been your mission, uh, which is the global entrepreneurial revolution. So let's get started. You know, Billion Dollar Moves is really a little bit about uh, some of the top trends that are happening right now in the world. Uh, but beyond that, we're, we also want to have a look beyond the individual um, that's wearing the hat of the funder and the founder and the exec. And today we want to find out about your billion dollar moves. I mean, you've had such an extraordinary career from politics to being an executive and then having an exit and now funding companies you believe in. Tell us about what got you here and who Christopher Schroeder is.
0: That's a hard question, I think, to answer in a quick synopsis. But I like to think of myself, first and foremost, of, of service. I think throughout my career, whether I was running companies or whether I was been doing the investment, which is tantamount really to being a mentor and an advisor to so many entrepreneurs around the world, I'm thinking, how can I make people actualize their vision? How can I make them achieve the dreams? When I ran WashingtonPost.com, to me, it was how could people get information in the most accessible way so they can make the best decisions in their lives. So I built a company called El Central that was to empower people to have their choice and how they were taking control of their health lives. And now when I spend time with literally thousands of entrepreneurs around the world, every woman and man has something in their teeth that they want to solve. And I hope some of my experience and some of the things I've went through and certainly the mistakes I've made can be helpful to them.
1: So tell me, which is your favorite chapter
0: so far? Oh, I've loved every chapter. I don't think there's, I mean, everything is a different pain points. Everything has different excitement about it and everything else. So I don't think there's mm-hmm. one that's been the favorite chapter. I think, There are moments that are shared in the sine wave, which is life. And I think it's when you really sort of realize you've got it, that um, that is an incredibly high moment that you've really gotten people together to make something happen and it actually happens. You've actually built something that wasn't there before. Throughout my career, those are the moments that have been highlights.
1: And I know you did an interview recently about sort of your transition, you know, where the the interviewer asked you about your transition into entrepreneurship. Um, And, you know, I ask this a lot with the founders that we work with. Um, whether you think a founder, that, that bug of entrepreneurship is something that uh, you're sort of born with or you cultivate. And is that um, something that you felt with yourself as you know, something that was innate within you, that you were first and foremost an entrepreneur, despite all the different chapters that you've had?
0: I think in reflection, I was entrepreneurial. I was always looking for new ways to think about the world almost in an iconoclastic way. When people mm-hmm. were sort of conventionally believing something was true, I would want to unpack it and understand it and see if there's new opportunity. And as a kid, I did many entrepreneurial things, including in a very different time and in a very different way. I had a little DJ business, which ended up actually failing incredibly. Uh, but also at the same time, I did things which were fairly established. I mean, in a way, when I was at the Washington Post, I was an intrapreneur, not an entrepreneur. We were a very entrepreneurial organization but within a very large media company. And uh, I had actually adjustments to become an entrepreneur again. When I spun out from that and uh, you know, co-authored a new company with a bunch of other people, uh, there was musculature I had to get back that I think I didn't quite have when I was in a more comfortable, a more entrepreneurial environment.
1: Hmm, that's interesting that you mentioned that. And I, I know, you know we've talked a little bit about this as well. Your shift to becoming CEO of Health Central uh, wasn't necessarily... Your strongest first few years and you know as you said I think there was a little bit of a muscle that you needed to rework there but uh, talk to us a little bit about that shift I mean a lot of um, entrepreneurs today are in fact you know exiting from their corporate jobs and it, it has become to some expect, aspect a, a necessity as well do you think that's something that um, you know you you sort of picked up through action and and learning along the way or was that was there something specific that you did for the transition
0: you know, you touched on a very true point. I see a lot of young people now who are pitching me now who have doing startups, and they've come out of places like McKinsey and Bain or maybe large corporations. And sometimes there's a lot of musculature that comes from that experience, which is very powerful. So, for example, in the Middle East and now in Pakistan and elsewhere, I'm seeing a whole slew of entrepreneurs who sort of cut their teeth working what became of a very large company called Kareem, which is the largest ride-sharing company there that got bought by Uber for over $3 billion. And in a way, that experience as entrepreneurs was very useful because they actually saw how to scale up a company. They learned sort of the vicissitudes of things that can go wrong and how you adjust to them. And that was very good learning. I think sometimes in other circumstances, you come from a big situation. You're comfortable with your brand. You're comfortable with the amount of money that you're making and all. And it is an adjustment. And I think in some respects, in my own case, coming from this you know, amazing large media company Uh, to being off on my own. I don't think my first year was my best year. I think I became the entrepreneur that that I did become. But I think in many uh, ways, my first year was an adjustment to rethink about things and to get some of that hunger and tenacity and perseverance back. That no matter how entrepreneurial you are in a large organization, if you have a brand, if you have a balance sheet, you have an element of security, people will answer your phone calls. That is jarring when you then decide that you're going to do it completely on your own. But you get there. If you really want it in your teeth, you figure it out. And
1: what was that learning for you in terms of, uh, you know, being able to shift from the, you know, I I guess the security, right? And and being able to then go out on your own. Was there something specific that you um, addressed in the way that you led the company, the way that you thought about the journey?
0: You know, I think firstly, there was an uh, adjustment uh, just in in humility, frankly. I mean, you just sort of get that there are going to be people who get you and understand you and then they're really willing to help you. And there are going to be a lot of people who thought about you in a different way when you had a certain brand behind you. And there's a little bit of a sifting exercise in terms of the talent that you recruit. There are people who are also great in uh, entrepreneurial opportunity and, and you know maybe weren't as good in an entrepreneurial venture. And so some of it was just humility. But what was the most essential thing that I did was I surrounded myself with what was effectively a personal board of advisors of actually some of the leading uh, startup entrepreneurs and venture capitalists in the country that just were friends of mine. And um, I relied on them heavily. And I asked a lot of questions. And I did a lot of reporting. I interviewed CEOs who I felt had done it well. And these women and men were absolutely essential for me to sort of reground myself and prioritize better. Uh, and then things, success began to breed success.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, yeah. you, you bring an important point, And I want to go then into uh, the topic of the day, which is the global entrepreneurial revolution that, that you know, we want to spend some time on. But uh, you brought up the fact of... Um, just how founders are have to think differently, and and you know uh, have that sense of humility. Um, and now you're in the next chapter of being an investor and advisor, where it's less hands-on. Uh, I know some VCs, you know, including Gary Tan from Initialized, uh, sometimes says you know he he misses that that hands dirty, you know, getting into the rough of trying to then build and and create. Um, how then that you shift now into uh, investments, and do you feel you're a better investor VC than you are a founder?
0: I completely empathize with uh, Gary's comment. There are a lot of times I'm sitting with an entrepreneur, and I think to myself, I'd love to be, you know, on the ground doing it again. Um, you know, quite often, I will tell you there are times I get two o'clock in the morning panic phone calls, and I help the entrepreneur think through what she's wrestling, and then at two right. fifteen I can go back to bed, and she can't. And that sometimes is a reminder to me that you know they're different things have their pluses and their minus overall. I will tell you that I just love uh, the pattern recognition that is developed, and particularly, you know, with next billion ventures and the things I do with Village Global and Idrisen and others. um, This sort of dashboard of a rising new globalism that I get to see through the eyes of entrepreneurs is very stimulating. But also, it gives me this, as I said before, a pattern recognition of how the world is changing, how different people are dealing with different circumstances, and I can see that value in the eyes of the entrepreneurs when I sit down with them and talk through what their issues are and give them you know, some ideas of what other people are doing. One of the things I love to do is bring entrepreneurs together from around the world who may be in very different businesses, but they may be navigating a similar product, say, in influence marketing or something like that. And right. all of a sudden, you'll have a couple of young people from Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America, and maybe one from Silicon Valley, all on a Zoom. And they're just completely brainstorming really innovative ways to handle a similar problem. And I must yeah. say, I love that stuff, Sarah. That's been terrific.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, they're all thankful for just the strategic thinking that you bring to the table that I think is, frankly, really one of your strongest suits in asking. Uh, you know, you always ask me the hard questions, and I'm sure you do that for everyone as well. And, uh, you know, it's truly, I think, uh, sometimes it's about really getting having that curiosity, right? As an investor, I think sometimes uh, there's so much about how the VC is, you know, God and king. But you know, people forget. The reality is, we're in business uh, because of the entrepreneurs, because of their great ideas and the innovation, and we're here to support it. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about this um, phenomenon, which you brought up with that sort of the Zoom call, and how all entrepreneurs uh, come to the table with almost a lingua franca that is entrepreneurship, a shared language of entrepreneurship, and this is happening globally. Uh, what are you seeing right now? You know, paint a little bit of a landscape right now of why we think and and you've called this out uh, long before right the global entrepreneurial revolution painted a bit of a landscape here for us
0: you know i had the first aha moment of sorts of this probably seven or eight years ago uh, with mike moritz who's the head of sequoia who's also an investor in my last company we're having a conversation a little bit about this and sequoia is one of the few venture capital funds from silicon valley who have deep presences in the global environment and he told me and he in fact used the term lingua franca. he said when i sit in a room with entrepreneurs no matter wherever they are, they are kind of the same people. Uh, you can see mm. the same look in their eye if you throw a problem at it. You can see them sort of generate how they're going to come at it and how they're going to think about it. Uh, they share many experiences and approaches in the way they do that. And what has been compounded in what I've seen now in the last you know eight years of traveling a quarter of a million miles a year and now on Zoom is a kind of a, an addendum to that. And that is what I have found is that I can meet entrepreneurs in any rising market, and it doesn't matter if they're in Jakarta, or in Sao Paulo, or Cairo, for all that is different, culturally, historically, geographically, if they're in the same sector or wrestling similar things, 70% of what they're thinking about is unbelievably similar. And they're navigating things in that 70% that, frankly, my sisters and brothers in Silicon Valley aren't thinking about. You know, How do you navigate last mile logistics if addresses are uncertain? How do you navigate regulatory environments that may change all the time? How do you bring people into financial inclusion if they've never had a credit card or a bank account before? And as you talk to people around the world, it is another element of that lingua franca, as you describe it, which is they know this experience. They understand this. They have ideas about how to navigate it. And it's not that my friends in the Valley don't sort of understand it. And certainly the new generation, that's very global, understand it, but they don't live it. And they're not trying to solve those problems, whereas these entrepreneurs really are.
1: Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. And are you seeing the same? I mean, you know, one of the key things that um, has become very real in this time of a pandemic and, you know, the, the headlines was that uh, despite what we thought was going to be a rough, re- rough couple of, uh, you know, few months or even leading up to a year, uh, startups actually are thriving and venture capitalists are, are throwing money at, at, at startups. We've seen some of the biggest IPOs, uh, the trend of SPACs and all these things, uh, coming to the fore here, what are you seeing across the globe? Is this something, you know, as we talk about the lingua franca and this, you know, just the burst of everything that's coming together, do you see this happening equally throughout the world of this rise of just startups?
0: What's happening equally, and then there's a little bit that's a, a bit unequal, as you can imagine, but what is equally happening, and I think this has been driven very much by COVID, it's almost become a cliche to say it now, is acceleration. It is mm-hmm. the idea that 5, 7, 10 years of behavior, pick whatever favorite number you have, has been jammed into about four or five months because people around the world have compelled to buy things online. People who are serving in e-commerce have had to find logistics to be able to deliver things that have been ordered online. Folks, again, who have never had a credit card before have to figure out how to navigate mobile payments. Uh, obviously, everyone is taking classes online. People are just seeking medical attention online. And many, many people who weren't that comfortable with it now have sort of been rocketed into that comfort. And that's fairly universal. And this has had a major effect on a lot of entrepreneurs, at least in certain sectors, of really thriving, in fact, performing much greater than they ever did before. And I think it has woken up a lot of the Western world to start looking at other parts of the world that they haven't focused as much in before because of that. The corollary, though, to that is that there is absolutely an unequalness, because I'm incredibly enthusiastic at the amount of access to technology that much of the world has. 80% of humanity who has a mobile device now has a supercomputer in their pocket a smartphone, Mm -hmm. literally more computing in their pocket than all of NASA had to put a man on the moon 40 years, 50 years ago. But two, three billion people on the planet have none of it at all. And I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind for all the enthusiasm of what's happening, that we used to talk about digital divide as kind of a nice thing to talk about. For me, it's now become an essential thing. It is the determinant of whether or not individuals and countries will be competitive in the 21st century or not, to be able to get this access going. That will be opportunity for entrepreneurs, but it also is causing some of the uneasy unevenness that you asked about before.
1: Right. And what what do you think is, is 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 this something that entrepreneurs should be thinking about? I mean, I you know, one of the key things that we are passionate about is seeing the impact uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs continue to make. Um, and and you know, just also part of it is the personal mission. Are you seeing uh, impact, sustainability, you know, the the task of wanting to address this inequity um, being something that entrepreneurs today are saying, yep, I'm going to do something about it. This is, you know, I'm not here to go into hyper growth and create yet another app that's for uh, growth sake, but I'm here to make an impact. Are you seeing a shift in terms of the purpose and the mission of entrepreneurship?
0: I think for some period of time, and it was even the case in my own startup, I rarely meet an entrepreneur who does not have some problem in her teeth that she really wants to solve, something in her backyard, or some experience that she has that she doesn't see some opportunity uh, to create something very powerful. And you know, I think a lot of times investors get very hung up on this idea that there's something called an impact investment and something called a um, for-profit investment. And I think Mm -hmm. the Venn diagram between the two is extremely tight. I mean, having said that, there's some problems, and this is an example of it in Digital Divide, which may not have a clear business model, may not have a venture capital-like return in a portfolio. And that means that there are going to have to be alternative sources of capital that are invested in that. But the fact of the matter is things like the digital divide are huge in infrastructure challenges, and they also run into the teeth of regulation. So this is one of the, while the entrepreneurial experience that we're talking about is a very bottom-up experience, this is one of these places where the top-down matters. Government and policymakers have to get their acts together, major providers of uh, infrastructure from mobile carriers um, down to the, you know, literally the people who are uh, laying fiber and so on, have to really think we've got to figure this out as an uh, opportunity. Again, you know, lots of different major players like Google and Facebook and others have leaned into this to try to be helpful to it, but there's just clearly a lot of work to do, and it's very clear coming out of COVID that the urgency is greater than ever before.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm jumping a little bit here, but you picked on something, which is the bottom up and the top down approach, which I, you know, is, is something that I think about often uh, coming from Malaysia an emerging economy, developing economies where government did play a role in starting up the ecosystem, right? You know, we didn't have Silicon Valley um, immediately. It took time, it, you know, even in Singapore, there was a lot of initial government investment into VC firms, into then startup entrepreneurship and, and so on and so forth. And my question to you then, and I know you've thought about this a little bit as well, is what is the role of government in entrepreneurship? And you brought up two key names that I also want to get your thought thoughts on, which is uh, Google and Facebook and the role of big tech and government, which is hot today. What What are your thoughts here?
0: Well, look, I mean, you know, there's a kind of a, if not a myth, a conventional wisdom that comes out of American entrepreneurs in particular. And I think there's been a huge element of this in the Valley for 20 years, which is the best thing the government can do is kind of get out of the way, let innovation do what it wants to do. And, mm-hmm. and I have a leaning towards that in many ways. Having said that, the irony is, of anyone who understands the history of Silicon Valley, the government played a lot of role in unleashing that innovation 50 years ago uh, and going forward from funding and DARPA and R&D and other things like that. Right. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, the ability to have policy whose focus is to allow talent to succeed and to unleash with the least amount of friction the ideas that she or he has to develop, I think is sort of the foundational mark of how, um, at the end of the day, policymakers can be thinking about this. Are you making an entrepreneur's life better, easier, faster, cheaper, more beautiful, more efficient? Are you allowing investment money to be able to flow fairly easily? And of course, investors are able to get money out of the circumstances. I mean, there's some very basic things that in this amazing global world that if certain governments and if certain countries don't get it right, capital and talent will simply go somewhere else. And then you have a cycle of this sort of brain drain and capital drain whose future is completely easy to predict. And so I do believe that there's a role of government. I do believe we have examples in many parts of the world that often make us in America uncomfortable where the government has been constructive. I think there are people who believe in those countries, you cannot have innovation because you cannot have centrally planned innovation. But I think people who are thinking that way have a view of central planned economies from maybe 20 or 30 years ago, they're not thinking about how there's been more of an ability to allow and unleash talent on its own sake. I still think there are many limitations. And there are many problems that these countries also have to stare at and rethink. Often they talk a better game than they act. Uh, But it's a complicated world. It doesn't lend itself to one simple answer. And your observation, you know, on Facebook and what have you, you know, it has been very fun uh, to pick on big tech in these days. I come at it at a little bit of a different lens. I mean, I think companies make major mistakes and I think they should be held accountable. And I think one of the great things, particularly about companies in America, is that you have an opportunity to self-correct or you'll pay a price in the market for not doing it. I think at the same time, we shouldn't under- underestimate the power of what big tech has unleashed around the world. And I have to tell you, I've spent some time recently really focusing on India and I've mm. seen this a lot in America and Brazil. I mean, WhatsApp is a revolution for small right. businesses and individuals, not only to connect in the way that you and I do commonly, but to literally do transactions, to build business, to reach customers. I mean, the only problem I think with WhatsApp is I don't think they understand how their tools are actually being used in rising markets. If they did, they would adjust the product To make it easier for them, because most of the women and men are jerry-rigging the product to make it work, but they're making it work by the millions and they're reaching customers and transacting things by the millions. You can't simply look at big tech and say they're all bad when tools like this have unleashed this level of potential and multiplier outcome in so many places in the world.
1: Right. But what what is the balance here, though? I mean, you know, sure, uh, I I think there's definitely good that has come of tech. And I think we have to be believers in tech. Uh, But Facebook, Google, Amazon uh, have grown to become monopolies in many ways. And and with even the political climate, I think there's a lot of discussion on what what is the limit and how how do markets really self-correct when the monopoly is so, so um, intense
0: I think it's an incredibly important question, and I've thought about it a lot in different contexts. I was in China a year and three months ago, and I sort of came away from these amazing meetings with Tencent and uh, Alibaba and others and thinking to myself, well, there's just no way anyone can compete with these juggernauts. Like, they are okay. so large. They have so much capital. They have so much talent. They have so much data. They can simply launch products with incredible efficacy, and they could do it for free. Having yeah. said that, TikTok rose. Having said that, said that, Pinduoduo completely rose be doing something very innovative and different in the way that they did in e-commerce and what audiences they went at. So, um, you know, innovation is a very kind of sticky, complicated thing where even in light of big juggernauts, the great companies have come in and disrupted them. Having said that, I do have some worry now, not so much about the traditional sense of antitrust, which is our consumers being hurt by pricing, because the fact of the matter is most of these platforms are incredibly price efficient and many of them are even free. And we have to keep in mind that Amazon is a juggernaut, but e-commerce still only represents about 16% of all retail sales in the United States. It's like 2% in most of the other places of the world. So you need to rethink what that definition is. What public good are you trying to get at? And the string that I will continue to pull on is the idea that the juggernauts may suck out the ability of innovation to rise. That to me is problematic. But on the other hand, I don't think I've got a lot of data proving it. I think I still see amazing companies that are innovating. They often get acquired. By some of these larger companies. And I've never been more bullish on the era of innovation that we're living in right now. So I think we have to ask these questions because they're important. We have to look at the data because they're real. But I think what often happens, particularly in American politics, is the fact that something is large inherently means it's a problem. And I think that's Mm -hmm. only one string to pull on. There's no nuance in that. It's a simple, politically expedient thing. And it's not getting to the essence of what is it that we want? What is the vision that we're building to? What is the environment regulatorily to what end? do we wish us to be? And I feel that that part of the argument often is lost.
1: Right. And, and, uh, you know, I want to go into what else you're seeing as well. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, um, what we've seen in the last couple of years, and you talk about the era of innovation, right. With the rise of so many interesting solutions, but having said that, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, I mean, Grab just announced a huge, uh, spec deal, Uh, You know, you talk a lot about the Kareem effect, which follows, you know, for for viewers, the PayPal effect, which is once a startup, you know, does really well, the founders, the founding team go on to spin off and do um, similarly amazing things. You know, people like uh, Elon Musk, who's created basically everything else uh, under the sun, the folks under a firm as well. And um, it's happening as well in the Middle East, which I want to get to. Um, But it seems to be, you know, more of the same super apps just applied in different localities. Didi is also going for an IPO, and that's a version of Uber. Uh, Are we really seeing innovation across the globe, or is it just copycat models?
0: I have friends at Silicon Valley who think that we don't, and that it is still an era of copycat and that real Mm -hmm. innovation. Like, I mean, there's a reason why America came up with two vaccines in 10 months, which has never happened in the history of the world, even close to it. And they think there's a big difference. I have a broader definition of innovation, because I think that if you have millions of people. With supercomputers in their pockets for the first time and they are beginning to explore and and invent with those products to solve hyperly local products uh, its problems these are incredible innovation i've invested uh the mbv team has invested in several b2b marketplaces around the world this is um, literally taking highly fragmented retail mom-and-pop shops and allowing them mm-hmm. to have platforms where one they can help sell goods with greater efficacy But secondly, with the data, they can actually become good borrowers and credit is available to them. 90% of retail sales are sold this way in most of the world, as opposed to what we're used to in the West. Don't tell me that these folks who are building these marketplaces and figuring out very interesting ways in very local terms are not innovators. And I'll tell you, I had a very interesting conversation on on Clubhouse uh, with Mudas Hirshika, who is one of the co-founders of Kareem, and they are moving down the path of a super app. I said, so you must have studied Grab to really understand how it happens. He said, look, we're aware of Grab. We certainly know what other people have done in China and elsewhere. He said, but I get up in the morning, go to bed at night thinking what innovation is actually most relevant to the markets that I'm in from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan. And that doesn't mean there aren't lessons from Grab, but I'm not a copycat of Grab. I am literally thinking about the best application and product on the terms of the audience that I wish to serve. And I think we need to keep that in mind when people are sort of you know, dismissive of this idea that people are merely taking ideas of work before. Why wouldn't you take a great idea and build upon it? All music is based on that. All literature is based on that. Uh, I don't understand why people don't look at that still as innovation. I mean, there's absolutely no question that Hemingway was inspired by previous authors. That doesn't take away from the innovation in his writing. It's not much different to me in technology.
1: Absolutely. And well, I mean, to to, um, the point of um, localization and really addressing what's real, uh, there is a reason why Didi, um, did better than Uber and why, um, you know, the, the fact of um, just the copycat models across the globe, why Grab still exists, right, in terms of uh, really catering to the Southeast Asian market and the understanding there. So talk to me a little bit about then um, your interest. I think you mentioned Kareem and then, you know, you wrote a book about uh, the revolution, uh, the entrepreneurial revolution in the Middle East. What was it that, that got you started on that path?
0: You know, I have a long uh, sort of historical and uh, passion about many parts of the world, but the Middle East and its history of antiquity and the rise of Islam has been very interesting to me. I'd been there as a tourist many times. But it really was almost 10 years ago of the day, just at the cusp of the beginning of the Arab uprising, that a couple of people who really, really were the kind of leaders of the tech ecosystem in the Arab world started telling me, you know, you and guys in America, you have one narrative about what's happening over here. You worry about all the doom and disaster and crisis, and you get yourselves involved and mess it up in your own way. But you got to understand the new generation has access to technology, and they're doing unbelievable things. And I went to the first major gathering of startups in the Arab world in uh, 2010, in the late fall, and I knew within three hours that my life had changed completely, because not only were these 3,500 young people with a 3,500-person waiting list unbelievably interesting from all over uh, the world. They didn't care about politics. They were looking to solve problems in powerful ways. Um, but it was clear to me that they were representative of a trend that to me is one of the biggest questions of our era, which we sort of started this conversation with. How does society, how does business, how does econ- economics, how does innovation change when everyone bottom up has access yeah. to supercomputing? And so the Middle East in and of itself was a shock to my narrative bias, and it took me into a very new version of understanding it. But in many ways, it was a complete platform of understanding a much larger global shift of which it's a part of.
1: And now beyond that, years later, after the book, you've gone on to explore the different emerging markets from Latin America to Southeast Asia as well. Tell us about what's exciting you. Uh, What are the new technologies that, you know, and some of the toughest problems that these entrepreneurs are solving?
0: Well, in a way, it's the toughest problems I love the most. I mean, I think there are some investors who who like to look at at things where, you know, it's kind of an only software solution and it may sort of scale out. But I love, like in the B2B um, marketplace example I gave you before, entrepreneurs who are looking at a massive local problem That has a lot of fragmentation, there's a lot of hands-dirty stuff you gotta get right on the ground. If you don't get it right, it doesn't matter. But if you do and you layer on data science and technology, you can then scale it and end the fragmentation and then allow these other businesses or other individuals to do things they couldn't do before. I think the biggest revolution of our era right now is that we are doing massive financial inclusion to a point where that almost any company of size with a lot of data is becoming a fintech company. Because if you are in e-commerce or if you are in a ride sharing, or if you have anything about data of consumers and businesses and how they transact, you can begin to predict whether or not they're a good credit risk in a way that credit bureaus never have been able to do it before. And this to me is a revolution because I'm seeing more and more businesses, not only like Pindadu in um, uh, China, but it's also like Fassili in Brazil and others, which are saying, look, we're going to not work on the bottom half of the pyramid because it's a good thing to do, though it is. We're going to do it because they're dying to be unleashed and now they have the tools to be unleashed and other people are not going to focus on them. We will on their terms. And this is something which is extremely exciting and quite universal across these markets.
1: Love it. So definitely embedded finance. I I think we're definitely seeing that across. And and just to take us home here, uh, you know, you work with a lot of founders. You've been a founder yourself in terms of the journey that you've been through. Uh, What would your advice be for founders uh, at this stage?
0: You know, there's something that you said almost parenthetically, which is true and is a cautionary note. I think a lot of founders are intimidated by money. One of the mm-hmm. benefits of this go-go era that I'm unnerving really unnerving to me right now, I think the valuations are getting quite frothy and that's not just problematic to me as an investor, but I worry about the performance that will justify it over time. But having said that, at least it's allowed a lot of power in the hands of entrepreneurs to not be intimidated by money. But I see this all the time where entrepreneurs think this woman is very wealthy or she's working for a well-branded firm, They must know everything. But in point of fact, the entrepreneurs invariably know tenfold of what an investor knows. And the investor may have very good pattern recognition. And if she's any good, she'll be an incredible mentor and opener of doors because of that pattern recognition. But no one understands the problem in their teeth like the entrepreneur. And sometimes I tell them, you know, perseverance is the greatest asset you can have after your integrity as an entrepreneur. But part and parcel of perseverance is not to be intimidated by naysayers around you or people who think they're bigger than you just because they've either made money or done something else. You know, keep, keep to your North Star, listen to data that might make you want to adjust your path to it. But don't be intimidated by people around you who are trying to tell you they know more than you do because often they do not.
1: Love it. And as we wrap up, uh, thoughts as we're getting to the end of the tunnel here with the pandemic, with uh, vaccines inside and and all of the above, but still rising cases, what are your thoughts on what's next for the coming months and looking into the year?
0: I think that there's three things I would say. One is I think we should be humble as we've ever been. We all have this release and we want to be out and we want to be doing things as we did them before. But I think we should be humble because we don't know how this thing will play out. And we should be conscious and sensitive to people around us in doing that. I think, secondly, there will be a massive temptation. And you'll see many of the pundits in the press talking about we're going to come back. In some respects, we will come back. We're dying to do things that we did before. We love travel, go to bars or whatever. But I think one of the most interesting questions is the question of back to what? President Biden talks often about America is back. It's a very, very different world in some ways. Things are changing in foundational ways that we have to stop and breathe a little bit. History will tell us what those changes were. But right now, as we think about the rise of cryptocurrencies, not only in an individual way like Bitcoin, but what's happening now with China releasing their own, as we look at NFT, if we look at a lot of other things that are happening, people are expressing and a new generation is expressing, they want something, I think, structurally different. And Mm -hmm. I think we should be thinking about that and interpreting how we can lean into that, again, with innovation and entrepreneurship to offer different kinds of solutions that can be very constructive into the complicated and often problematic world we're in.
1: Well, Chris, you know, this was a short half an hour that we had to really run through the global entrepreneurial revolution, your personal journey. And I think we've really covered a lot of bases. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for spending time with us here and your leadership.
0: It's great to be here, sir. And thanks for your leadership. And
1: thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jujitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud wherever you get your podcasts.